come this Lord's Day to continue in our study on the subject of Christ being made a curse for us in order to redeem us from the curse of the law. The last Lord's Day, we spoke of the results of Christ redeeming us by being made a curse for us, or that righteousness is imputed to us by faith. That's the blessing of Abraham. We are justified and the promise of the Holy Ghost is given to us. The indwelling of the Holy Ghost in believers changes us. He makes a difference in our conduct. Paul explains that our very bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. We are a house unto our God. God owns us for we are bought with a price. The very precious blood of Jesus Therefore, we ought to glorify God with our bodies and our spirits. We're to behave as if we are God's purchased possession because we are, as if we are continually in the presence of God because we are. The Holy Ghost unites us with Christ so that because Jesus has slain sin in the flesh and already executed all the law's punishments in himself for us, we are dead to all that now and alive by the Spirit of Christ to live unto righteousness. We live in the Holy Spirit. He is our life. And when we walk in the Spirit, hearing His voice, obeying His urgings and pleadings, we will keep the Lord's commandments. The law was weak because of the flesh, but Christ condemns sin in His flesh and in us because we are united with Him in His death. By walking in the Spirit, we will fulfill the law's righteousness. Nobody can please God in the flesh, but all who trust in Jesus are in the Spirit. The body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The work of Christ and of the Holy Ghost in us washes us, justifies us, and sanctifies us. Indeed, the Holy Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ. We who were once vile sinners, committing a host of crimes against God, are now being sanctified, set apart unto God. We are not to wallow in those former sins, but be sanctified by the Holy Ghost within us. Paul tells us we are being sanctified when the fruit of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh, are wrought in us by the Holy Ghost. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us we're to walk in the light of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit in us is goodness, righteousness, and truth. In Galatians 5, Paul expands upon this theme. He contrasts the work of the flesh, which are all our efforts to keep the law for our own righteousness, with the fruit of the Spirit, which the Holy Ghost works in a believer who does not trust in his own works, but only in Christ's work. Notice that the works of the flesh are never accounted as good deeds at all. Never accounted as good deeds at all. They're all cruel sins. Paul lists a bunch of them, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, idolatry, hatred, witchcraft, wrath, strife, etc., God takes note of our works of the flesh and judges that they are all rebellion against Him. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. We are exhorted to walk in the Spirit, and those fruit will be wrought in us, not of our own work, but because God works in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. We are to put no confidence in the flesh, but rather to yield ourselves unto the Holy Ghost living in us, and He will work in and through us His gentle and righteous fruit. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul describes the work of the Holy Ghost in us as changing us into the glory of Christ. As we gaze upon the beauty and glory of the Savior, the Spirit transforms us into that same glory more and more. As we look upon Christ, how do we gaze upon the glory of Christ? By reading and meditating upon God's Word, singing hymns of praise to Him, worshiping Him around the Lord's table, hearing sermons and teachings and exhortations about the perfections and beauties of Jesus. As we consider the exceeding love Jesus has for us and the horrible price He paid for our redemption from sin and death, as we consider that He was made a curse for us to save us, then we see more and more of His glory. And true love for Christ grows in our hearts around the table. Each Sunday we are drawn near unto Him as we celebrate the sacrifice that He made for us. His body and His blood are our very life. And spiritually, we feed upon Him. Because He was made a curse for us, we receive redemption by His blood, the forgiveness of sin, righteousness imputed to us by faith, and the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. Through all of that, the Spirit changes us unto the image of our Lord. And now this Lord's Day, we come hopefully to finish up this particular aspect, what Paul in Galatians 3 says is the outcome of Christ redeeming us by being made a curse for us. Galatians 3 at verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We've been speaking for, this will be the fourth Sunday, I believe, about this promise of the Holy Ghost by faith, which is a consequence of Christ redeeming us by being made a curse for us. Now, this Lord's Day, we come to the most glorious texts, I believe, regarding this promise of the Holy Ghost, and that is the spirit of adoption which the Holy Ghost is to every believer who is trusted in Jesus. If you look at Romans 8, at verse 14, for example, we find written by Paul, For as many as are led of the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children 
of God. Here we are coming unto God as His newly adopted children. And the Holy Ghost is in us as the spirit of adoption. What God places in us, His very spirit, that we might be adopted unto Him as His children. Now, a lot of people like to go around saying we're all God's children, but the Scriptures say the opposite. They say that we are all children of wrath until God quickens us and makes us alive by the Holy Ghost and causes us to believe upon the Lord Jesus for our salvation and redemption. Then we become children of God. You see, we're not natural-born children of God. The Lord Jesus, it is said, is the only begotten of the Father. And we do not have in us a spirit of bondage. Notice he says, again, unto fear. You see, that's what was taken away from us when we were justified through faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus. The spirit of bondage unto fear was what we were all our lifetime subject to, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2. But now we have the spirit of adoption. We've been freed from the spirit of bondage, of the fear of judgment for our sin. And we've had that spirit of bondage replaced with the spirit of adoption. That is the Holy Ghost in us knitting us unto God as our Father, embracing us, assuring us that we are now the sons of God and we have been adopted by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is why we can cry, Abba, Father. You see, we come to God now not in the spirit of fear of the wrath of God for our sins, which are many, but because Christ Jesus has taken away those sins by His offering on the cross. Well, now we draw near to the love of the Father. We come to Him and call out to Him, Father, Father, rather than to cringe in His presence as the wrathful judge who is about to condemn us. This is the difference between the spirit of adoption, the Holy Ghost in us, knitting our hearts unto the Father as our Father, as our adopted Father. The contrast between that spirit of liberty and love compared to the spirit of bondage that was in us when we were working for our own righteousness, desperately trying, some of us more than other perhaps, but all of us futilely trying to please God with our own filthy works, which we thought were good works. This is what it means to be indwelt by the Holy Ghost, that we have Him as the Spirit of adoption. And the Spirit also bears witness, you see, with our spirit, that we are the children of God. He bears witness of this. He speaks to us assuring us that we are the children of God. He joins together with our spirit that has been told, has been assured that we are the children of God. God as our Father has taken us unto Himself in adoption. We're not the only begotten Son, but we are the alien children who were of wrath but were taken in love by adoption, by God Himself.
Think of how amazing that is. We who should have been destroyed utterly for our crimes. Rather, He has embraced us as His adopted children. And the Holy Ghost communes with our spirit, telling us that we are now God's children. Assuring us, even one might say pleading with us, to understand our newfound status through Jesus Christ. It is a miraculous thing that God should so desire us to be His children that He sent the Holy Ghost to indwell us, to convince us, if you will, to knit us unto Himself, to cement, if you will, this new relationship which He alone initiated and executed and brought to pass. You see, we didn't go to God with the idea that we would like Him to take us as children, did we? No, we're in a rebellion against God. We hated God. We're not like cute little kitty cats who snuggle up to strangers begging them for love and affection and food, are we? No, we're the, we're the animals at the shelter that lash out at everybody that tries to approach us in fear and rage. That's the way we are. But God's love for us, His people, extended to His demanding that we be His children. And certain and sure of it. And offering up the greatest price to purchase us as His adopted children. It is a miraculous thing that God should so desire us in this way. That He sends the Holy Ghost to indwell us. To knit us unto Him by the Spirit also makes us joint heirs with Christ. You see, Paul is not just using this adoption as some little flimsy throwaway metaphor. He says it goes to the consequences of adoption. We're made heirs. You know, if you adopt a child in this country, the law says that it's as if he was a natural-born child of yourself why they issue a new birth certificate. And the birth certificate is rearranged in such a way that people reading it cannot tell that you are adopted because legally it is the same as if you were born to those adopted parents. And you become entitled to inherit all the things that a normal child would be expected to inherit from his parents. By the way, you're cut off from inheriting from whoever it was that were your original biological parents. And that's a good thing for us spiritually, isn't it? We don't inherit the wrath that comes to Satan and all of his henchmen that we were once enthralled to. That inheritance is cut off. And the new inheritance, joint heirs with Christ of all the glories of the universe, all the riches is divided with the adopted children. Christ becoming our elder brother, and we his younger brethren. You see, he shares his riches with us, and he's pleased to do so. Now, sometimes in a physical adoption, the natural children are envious of the adopted children. But not so our Lord Jesus. He loves us. You remember in Hebrews 2, it says that he might lead many sons to glory. He was made flesh like we are and suffered death on the cross in our place. Through suffering, he might be perfected that he might lead many sons unto glory. 
He shares his riches with us, and we have been made one family with Jesus Christ as our loving elder brother. Paul goes on in Galatians 4, the passage we read this morning, to underscore all of this. We'll just read verses 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. Now that's a reference back to chapter 3, Galatians 3.13, where it says that he was made a curse for us under the law that he might redeem us from the curse of the law. So here you see that Paul is repeating and and tying what he's about to say back to the fact that Christ was made a curse for us. That is the foundation of what is to come, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So you see, this is another consequence of Christ being made a curse for us, that we might be redeemed and that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. What we've just been saying, Paul reiterates in Galatians chapter 4. Notice the curse of Christ referenced by which He redeemed us from the law, all of its curses and judgments, that we might receive the adoption of sons. For we were not fit to be children of God without Christ being made a curse for us. But because He was made a curse for us, He redeemed us. He set us free. He took away our crimes. He had His righteousness imputed to us by faith in His offering. And now we've been adopted as sons. God's taken us unto Himself as His children. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So here is another statement of the fact that the Spirit of Christ in us, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, is the Spirit of adoption. And He cries out from within us, Abba, Father. Now, notice that in Romans 8, it says, We cry, Abba, Father, by the Spirit. In Galatians 4, it says, The Holy Ghost cries, Abba, Father, in us. Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and an heir of God through Christ. Do you see how the Holy Ghost in us articulates clearly what we sometimes forget? He cries out in us, Abba, Father. I think most Christians go through their days forgetting that they're sons of God. That the Father is our Father by adoption. That Christ has told us to cry out to Him as Father. Paul has instructed us to cry out to Him, Abba, Father. And when we fail to do it, the Holy Ghost is in us crying out, Abba, Father. He would plead with us to say the words with Him unto our Father. Father, Father. A term of affection, a term of love, a term of loyalty. He brings us along in sonship unto the Father. He speaks for us even when we fail to speak. 
You see, this is part of the work of the Holy Spirit in knitting us unto God. That when we are in trouble, when we are lazy, when we are thoughtless, when we are preoccupied, when we are cold, the Spirit is in us, filling up the deficit, if you will, of our affectionate language unto God who has adopted us. He perfects in us the filial language of love and sonship that we ought to speak. He carries us along toward love for the Father as our Father, knitting us unto Him in love and as we spoke last Lord's Day, in obedience. Paul makes this point more generally, uh, that the Holy Ghost in us prays in our place unto God. We know this text well, Romans 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Our hearts are not perfectly conformed to the will of God, are they? Why, we want things that we don't know that God doesn't want us to want. And sometimes we want things that we know God doesn't want us to want. Our hearts are not perfectly conformed to the will of God. But in the Holy Ghost, you see, making up for that by praying on our behalf unto our Father. He prays for us the things we ought to pray for, even when we don't have the discernment or the desire or the faith to do so. The Holy Ghost is in us, you see, perfecting us again in our prayer toward the Father so that Whatever He prays for is what the Father truly desires for us. Why? Because He knows the will of the Father, even in ways in which we don't know. But whether we know the will of the Father or not, the Holy Ghost is there to intercede for us, consistent with the will of the Father for us in all things. So sometimes, you see, you might be praying for one thing, but the Holy Ghost is countermanding that prayer with a prayer that's consistent with what the Father actually wills. This is yet another way in which the Spirit operates in us to conform our prayers to God unto the will of God. He is praying on our behalf to the Father. This intercession of the Holy Ghost for the saints presents to the Father what we ought to say and pray for. So when we are inarticulate or apathetic, or even cold to the Father, the Holy Ghost is speaking on our behalf in our stead to knit us unto the Father, even when we're unaware of it. The Holy Ghost always prays according to the Father's will because He is the Spirit that knows perfectly well God's will for us, even when we may not. One time I spoke on this subject of adoption and I said in part this, we are all sons by adoption, we who've trusted in Jesus and taken unto ourselves His sacrifice and flung aside all of our other schemes for pleasing God. We're no longer servants under the law. The desire of the Father that we should receive Him as our Father is touchingly shown by His placing in us the Spirit of Christ, His only begotten Son, 
who cries out on our behalf, Abba, Father. And then I noted this. Every adoptive father longs for his son to treat him as his real father. Isn't that the case? Have you ever seen a situation where adopted children feel alienated from their parents, their adoptive parents? Because someone tells them, you're just adopted. Or they find out. Or there's some rivalry between them and the natural born children of their parents. And the parents yearn for their hearts to be knit together as parents and children. But there's nothing they can do to make it happen. Why sometimes they'll try to buy off their kids with fancy gifts. They'll make protestations of love to their kids. And sometimes their kids will turn against them. Their adopted children will turn against them. But every adoptive father longs for his son to treat him as his real father. How wicked are those persons who try to undermine the adopted son's love for their father? And we see this in our society and family courts and so forth all the time. And it's very offensive. It's most evil that someone would attempt to get between parents who love their adopted children and are trying to provide for them as best they can and for their best benefit and others to come along and try to cut them asunder from those children whom they've adopted and whom they love. We cannot comprehend the full love of God the Father for us now. But Christ's Spirit, the Holy Ghost, speaks for us and makes up our deficiencies in protestations of love for the Father. Until we are made like Christ one day when we see Him as He is. So your protestations of love and obedience to the Father may be, and no doubt all of ours are, woefully incomplete, woefully below standard. And yet we have the Holy Spirit given to us, indwelling us who speaks out those things for us that we ought to speak. Now, the indwelling of the Holy Ghost is described in Scripture as the down payment, the earnest money, the deposit for us, guaranteeing the final redemption of the body. You see, we're not only redeemed from the judgment for our sin by the death of Christ, but there is a promise, isn't there? Remember what Jesus said, whosoever comes to me, I'll in no wise cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will raise him up at the last day. There's a promise of physical rescue. Physical rescue at the end unto everlasting life. That he will not leave our souls in hell. And so we can rest in hope. Hope which is faith, which is a sure confidence that what Christ has promised for us, one day He will accomplish in toto. We've already been rescued from judgment for sin. We've already been justified, declared to be without fault for Jesus' sake. We've already been redeemed from the everlasting judgment for our sin. It's been taken away. But one day we will receive the final redemption of our bodies where we will be rescued from the last vestiges of sin indwelling in us of the old flesh dragging us down, of all the things in our bodies, in our lives, in this world that are wrong and that are 
incompatible with being the sons of God. In Ephesians 1, Paul has this to say about this subject, this idea that the Holy Ghost is given to us as an earnest, as a down payment, like you do when you agree to buy a house and you pay a down payment to the owner so the deal is locked in. If you walk away from it, you lose your earnest money, don't you? Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 9. Having made known unto us, that is, God has made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself. This is all the good things God's decided beforehand to do for His people. The mystery of His will. He purposed it in Himself. Now, you know, we purpose things all the time. Nothing comes of it, don't we? We're going to be millionaires. We're going to have a Rolls Royce. We're going to be elected governor or president. We can have all kind of purposes. But when God purposes something, He accomplishes it because He's all-powerful. He rules the whole world. But look at what it says. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. You see, God always gets what He wants. Nobody can thwart God or overpower God or overcome God or disappoint God. He always gets what He wants. That we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel, of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of His glory. So the indwelling of the Spirit of God in us, in believers, is the down payment, it's the earnest, it's the seal of what we are promised and are entitled to receive as the adopted sons of God. We're predestinated to an inheritance. It's foreordained for us. It's been set by the will of God and it shall most certainly be accomplished. And this is as sons, you see, by God who works all things after the counsel of His will. So after we believed, we were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, which one day we will enter into when our very bodies are rescued from the power of sin and death. The Holy Ghost fills us with joy and peace in believing. Romans 15 at verse 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. So here's another example of what the Holy Ghost does for the Lord's people. He fills us with joy and peace in believing. Now some people feel like that you know, their belief is very shaky. That's what the power of the Holy Ghost is given to us in indwelling us that our believing might be with joy and peace, you see, not in doubt and trouble. But ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. 
So here is another work, another way of looking at the work of the Holy Ghost indwelling us, that He fills us with joy and peace and strengthens our faith in the promises that God has made for us. And then in Romans 5, the Holy Ghost sheds abroad in our hearts the love of God for us. Look at what it says in Romans 5 at verse 5. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you see the Holy Ghost sheds abroad in our hearts the love of God. It communicates with us that we are loved by God. How does it do it? By reminding us of the sacrifice that Christ made for us, by constantly bringing to mind, I know my God loves me because He sent His dear Son to die on the cross to save me from my sin. This is, you see, another example of the truth that we cannot really understand or grasp or believe in the death of Christ for the saving of sinners without the Holy Ghost shedding abroad in our hearts that love. Without Him communing with us, communicating with us. And it doesn't just end when we first believe. It's a continual thing. The Holy Ghost is always displaying in our hearts, communicating to our hearts the love of God through the death of Jesus Christ. And then finally, by the Holy Ghost, we know the great love of God. Another way of putting it in Ephesians chapter 3, that God the Father would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. This is to be strengthened with might by the Holy Spirit in the inner man. This is the work of the Holy Ghost in bringing to our consciousness an understanding of the hugeness of the love of Christ, the true dimensions of His love that He wrought for us at the cross, you see. It's something that we can never fully lay hold of. It is so astounding, so miraculous, so large, so marvelous so glorious that we might know with fullness the huge size of the love of Christ for us which passes all understanding. This knitting together of us to God by the Holy Ghost, you see, is a miraculous thing. Nothing on earth in our earthly lives can compare to it. None of us can do this sort of thing in ourselves to generate love in another by our own words or deeds or even by our own expressions and manifestations of love. Think of it. God intends for His love for us 
to be more real, more gripping, and more in control of us than any other love of this world, of ourselves for someone else or of that person for us. The love of God is meant to be experienced at a far greater, higher, nobler level than any of the loves that pass away in this world. And that's why, you see, He imparts to us the Holy Ghost, that there might be a communion there inside our hearts, between ourselves and God the Father who loves us so. He's so determined that we shall love Him and trust Him that He gave us His Spirit to dwell in us, to work, to speak, and to love us up close personally and to generate a love in our hearts unto God as our Father. God took His beloved ones on as a great and glorious project to redeem us wholly unto Him in a way that transcends all the loves that we have in this old world. And at the Lord's table we view in symbols here the price paid by such love, Christ being made a curse for us, being put to death in our place and for our crimes, that we might be captured completely by the love of God for us and live forever in that love and that glory which we have only begun, which we have only barely begun to grasp and understand and rejoice in. So around this table, we rejoice in the love of our God for us. And the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to knit us unto God in love, obedience, and glory. Let's give thanks for the Lord's table and for the picture of the bread broken for us. Let's pray. O God, our Father, we rejoice that you have so loved your people. You have been unstinting in your love for your people. You spared not your own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How shall you not also with Him give us all good things? And we know that the Lord Jesus knew when He instructed His people of your great love and how you know what we need before we ask and how you will not give us a bad thing, but only good things. We who've trusted in you, we know that He was well aware of the terrible price he would pay. One day soon when he went to Calvary, was nailed to the cruel tree, and in agony and woe he bore our sins and was judged by you and was forsaken by you for a time there as he hung in shame for us. And we thank you for the bread that he left us to symbolize not only the body that's broken, but how in his real flesh not in this bread, in His real flesh, is our very life. All of our life, all of our hope for eternity is in the body that He gave as an offering in our place as our substitute for our crimes on the cross. And we come around this table to celebrate it by the eating of this bread. Bless us as we partake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us, that on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me.
like to ask my Father if He'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for our sin. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 158 in the black book. How sweet and holy is the place with Christ within the doors where everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. 158.